talked about church as a body with many members. We talked about church as a temple with sacrifices and priests in it. We talked about church as a flock under the care of a, of a good shepherd. And today, we talk about church as family, perhaps very appropriate because it's Mother's Day. And so, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And we're going to talk about family today. Now, when you think about family, of course, when you try to get to know anybody, huh? Slides? I can't switch it from here. But, all right, somebody can switch the slide so my wife could be calm. That'd be great. Um, when you get to know someone, uh, one of the first questions you would normally ask is, is where are you from? Do you have any siblings? Are you married? Do you have children? Where did you grow up? All those questions have to do with family. It's very important for us to understand the family background of a person to know what they're like, where they're coming from, what, what's really important to them. A good interviewer would always try to get at the family background and family history, trying to understand what motivates a person because often that starts as you're growing up from your parents, your siblings, Sometimes we would look at a competitive person and we would say, well, maybe they grew up with siblings and they had to compete with each other. Or somebody who, who is insecure, sometimes we would say, well, maybe that's because they didn't get enough approval and affirmation from uh, her parents. We often find those causes in family background. Our identity is very much rooted in our family background and family experience. Even now, if you're married and you have children, your life is very different from somebody who's, who's single. And so we need to understand how this family dynamic enters into church life. And the Bible makes much of this family idea as you read through both the Old and the New Testament. So our passage today, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, is very short, but there's a lot for us to learn from it. Let's, let's listen to what 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor, and Paul is teaching Timothy how to organize church, how to do church. And one of the big pictures he gives Timothy is one of family. That an older person should be treated as if they are your parents. Younger person is treated as if they are your children. And the same age, people of the same age are treated as if they are your siblings. So let's look at this idea of church as family. I'd like us to look at three questions as we work through the text. Number one, how do we become part of the family? How do we become part of the family? Number two, how do we behave in the family? And number three, how do we break through family dysfunction? So how do we become part of the family or part of the church? How do we behave in the family? And lastly, how do we break through family dysfunction that is so prevalent, unfortunately, in churches? All right. Well, if you read First Timothy and you look at how Paul looks at church, you will see that he refers to church as God's family. 
not just that we are family to each other, but that we are God's family. We've been brought into a family of God. For example, 1 Timothy 3.15, just two chapters earlier, Paul refers to the church as the household of God. Household of God. So we can't simply focus on human relationships in the church unless we address our relationship with God first. In fact, we're only related to each other because we're related to God individually. I have brothers and sisters in the church because I have a father in God. I think it's a mistake for us to limit our conversation about community to interactions among people only. Christian community, by definition, is an extension of the community of the Trinity, of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The way Jesus understands community, human community, church, is reflective of his own community with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So in John 17, when Jesus prays, you know, the famous high priestly prayer, when he prays right before he's arrested and dies for the church, he prays this, I do not ask for these only, so for the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. All these lines get blurred here because Jesus is saying, just like I love the Father and the Father loves me, so you are to love each other. Just as the Father and I are one, so you are to be one. It's interesting that the unity of the Trinity is now translated into the unity of the local church. Now think about the the familial nature of the gospel itself. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about what God has done for us. It's the Father, right? who reconciles us to him as his children through the sacrifice and the victory of the Son. And all of that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is often called the Spirit of Adoption. So do you see the language that is used in Scripture of the Gospel of the Trinity? It's it's family. And so we are to relate to one another as family because we have been brought into the family of God. My point is very simple that we or really any church cannot function as a family unless individually we have been welcomed into God's family first. The quality of family life in the church is directly connected with the quality of each believer's relationship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. What that means is that we can't expect unbelievers, those who have not been converted to Christ, to act like they are believers and family members in the church. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. If you're not connected to the family of God through the gospel 
being brought in almost into the Trinity, as it were. If that hasn't happened to you, how can you relate to others in the same way? We need to experience that ourselves, and we need to continue to experience it in our own relationships with God so that we can now extend it to others. The quality of family life in the church is directly tied to our quality, the quality of our relationships with Christ. And we see that happen. Relationships in the church are broken, often because relationship with Christ is broken in that particular life. It happens a lot. The usual circumstance is somebody leaves the church because they're in unrepentant sin and, and other Christians have called them out and they've tried to restore them and yet they persist in a disobedient, rebellious life. They leave the church and they say, well, I never felt there at home anyway. That's not true. You did until you started pursuing sin. And now your relationship with Christ is broken. It's been damaged by sin. Of course, your relationships with other people are going to be damaged as well. Those are connected. And we can't talk about community unless we're also talking about our experience of God through the gospel. So an immature, passive, unhealthy believers make for an immature, passive, unhealthy church. That's how it works. So what can you do to be a family, to be the best family you can be in a local church? Is pursue Christ yourself. The more you pursue Him, the more you are affected by the love of the Father in your own life, the more capacity to love others you're going to have. The more importance you're going to see in continuing these relationships and investing in this particular local community. Personal spiritual dysfunction results in family dysfunction. There is no family that functions well unless people function well. If you are spiritually healthy, it is likely that your community is going to be spiritually healthy too. But if we are not spiritually healthy, we can't expect that our community is going to be a healthy family as well. Now, I already alluded to that, but we don't all start, start out as part of God's family. We don't start as belonging to God or to church family. We are not naturally God's children. By nature, we are separated, alienated from God. By virtue of our sinful nature, our rebellious nature, we do not belong with God and his family. But we can become God's children. We can be brought into God's family. Now, I remember when I was dating Jillian, and we met in Ukraine. Jillian is from Michigan. I'm from Ukraine. We met in Ukraine, and then uh, I came here. She was going to college. I went to the same college. I was smitten by her, decided to change my whole life and educational, educational pursuits based on where she was. Um, came to her country, to her college, and then met her family. And they took me in. They took me in. They loved me. They welcomed me. They didn't legally adopt me, but for all other purposes, they did. I was, I was instantly accepted into their family. I stayed at their house. We ate together. I went on family trips with them. Made it a little awkward at times. 
But they just brought me in as one of the kids. Even when we were dating, we were not engaged, we were not married, but they took me in. That's what it feels like when you're coming into God's family. God takes you in, and then you become part of His life, part of the life of His people. When I, when I came into Jillian's family, sure, I had a relationship with her. Now, all of a sudden, I have a relationship with everybody else in the family. Her parents, her brother, her sister, their families. All of a sudden, now, I have this large family that I belong to. That's what happens with us through Christ. When you become converted, God brings you into his family. Now you have all these brothers and sisters and parents and children in the church. It happens instantly. You're brought into God's family and thus the local church. Now, how does that happen? The Bible talks about it in terms of adoption. That's one of the richest concepts in Scripture. And if you have adopted child, adopted a child or you have been adopted yourself, uh, that becomes even richer to you when you contemplate what God has done for us. God adopts us as his children, not natural children, but adopted children. For example, in John 1, verses 12 through 13, to all who did receive him, meaning Christ, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So a spiritual change happens at conversion. God gives you the right, on behalf of Christ, through him, to become a child of God. Now you become part of God's family. It's a, it's a legal change. It's a change in status. Those who were naturally separated from God and did not belong to his family, now through Christ, are legally adopted into God's family. When we adopted Evangeline, I remember very clearly, and we have pictures to prove to you, that one particular event, when we went to court, we went before a judge, and the judge looked at our paperwork and interviewed us and talked about Evangeline's life before we met her, and if anybody asked if anybody had any claims on her, any other relatives wanted to, to step up and, and claim her as, as her own, and nobody did. And then the judge says, okay, now she's officially your daughter. And we came out of the building and we took a picture with a little piece of paper on which we put down, she's ours. She's ours. That was the time when, when legally she became ours. We had a relationship with her before then, but there was a time when the judge said, now she's your daughter. She's officially your daughter. That's what happens at conversion through Christ. You believe in Christ, you receive him, you believe in his name, you trust him, that what he did for you changes everything in your life, and then God makes you legally his child. With all the benefits, with all the responsibilities, now you become part of God's family. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So not only there's a change in legal status, the judge decides that we belong to God, there's also a change in relationship. Something happens. J.A. Packer says, closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Not only there's a legal change, there's a relational change. Now the Father expresses his love, his affection, his attention to you. Packer goes as far as saying, Father is the Christian name for God. Father is a Christian name for God. This is how we relate to God, through adoption in Christ. He's our Father. He's other things too. He's creator. He is the judge. All of that is true, but he is our Father through conversion. Uh, Philip Ryken describes our adoption by God well in this quote. Notice how all three persons of the Trinity, the family of God, are involved in bringing us into their family. Riken says, First God sent his Son to save us from our sins and to make us all his sons and daughters. The Son is the elder brother who picks us up and sets us down on God's lap. Then God sent his Holy Spirit, the divine whisper, who tells us that we will always be God's special children. When we hear the Spirit's whisper, our hearts cry out to God, you will always be my Father. Do you see how it's the Father who initiates it? It's Christ who makes it possible through his sacrifice. But it's the Spirit who actually brings you into that relationship. The Trinity is engaged because you're being brought into a community, into a family, so every person in the family of God is involved. Now, obviously, those analogies do not hold all the way through. They break down at some point. It's hard to find an analogy or an illustration that describes God and especially the Trinity. But a family is a good one because God is a community, is a family. There's closeness in relationship. There's unity and diversity. And God brings us into that and into a human family that reflects God's own community. So we're brought into the family through the adoption by the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we behave in this new family, in the church that we were now, that we're now a part of? This new legal status, right? This new relationship with God places us into a new community, a new family, the church. And now we're related to all these other people in the church. Now, when we adopted Evangeline, uh, it was really Jillian and I that did that. It was our signatures and all the paperwork. We paid the money, and all of that was us. It was the parents. And yet, when Evangeline came into our lives, now she became the youngest of four sisters. Now, her sisters didn't make that decision necessarily, but now they had another sister. She came into the family because the decision was made by the parents. And so now she found herself in the midst of three other siblings. And so what happens with us? God the Father adopts us, and now we find ourselves in the midst of 
all these different people, all these different siblings. Now let's read our passage from 1 Timothy 5 again and see what we can learn about the expectations of relating to others in the church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, what do you notice here? What relationships are highlighted here? Is it cousins twice removed? Is it great-grandparents who live in Florida? Is it a niece that you only see once a year? No, those are distant relations. What Paul is talking about here is, is nuclear, nuclear family. The people who are with you all the time. People that you eat with, that you sleep in the same house with. It's people who are with you every day. That's what church is like. It's a close family. It's like parents and children and brothers and sisters. That's what family is and that's what church is supposed to be like. People in the church who are older than us, we should treat as parents. That means honor, respect, maybe obedience to a certain degree, attention, reverence. The world tells us that if you've lived long enough, you can't, you don't have anything to offer to us, the young ones. Right? We feel like the younger the better, the newer the better. Right? All the ideas come from the young. That's not true. We who are young, we don't know what we're doing until we're older. So let's talk to the older people now so they can tell, tell us what we should be doing. The church is supposed to function like that. That's why we have Christian tradition. That's why we sing songs that were written 200 years ago. We trust those who came before us, and we should trust those who are among us who have more experience and have lived longer that can teach us, young ones. The world doesn't function like that, but the church should function that way. As we would treat parents, so we should treat other people in the church who are older, both men and women. And those in the church who are the same age as we are, we should treat as brothers and sisters. Help, as you would a brother or a sister. Support, talk through issues, be there for them, watch their children if necessary. How you should treat your brother or your sister is how you should treat other people in the church. Now look at the specific application of treating the other gender with sexual purity, as a brother would treat a sister. It's a very good rule. I would see other women in the church as my sisters, so I would act appropriately towards them. And then finally, if we look at children or people who are younger than us, not necessarily children, we should treat them as children, as those that we can help raise in the faith. Even though in our passage Paul doesn't say it, but earlier he calls Timothy his true child in the faith. He's treating Timothy as his child. He's raising him. He's taking care of him, he's protecting him, he's providing for him. And so even if it's not my biological child in the church, my responsibility is still for that child. 
which is why we do baby dedications in church. Part of the reason we do it is to present a new baby to the congregation and say, this is now your child too. And you are responsible for that child too. Not any more than his or her parents, but also being engaged in the life of that family and helping them and being available to them. Now, it's really quite simple as we, as we think about application. Imagine, imagine that everybody here right now and those that aren't here on this particular Sunday are actually related to you by blood. They are your sisters and your brothers and your parents and your children. Imagine that to be true. How would that change your relationships within the church? What would you do differently if you looked at other people in our congregation as your brothers, as your sisters, as your parents, as your children? What would you do differently? How would your life change if you really lived as part of family in the church? Would you spend more time with people? Yeah, I think so. If your family was here a student and your family was closer to you, you would spend more time with them, wouldn't you? If, if it's really true that in Christ we are related to each other as family, shouldn't we also treat each other as family? Be interested in each other's lives? Spending time together, helping each other? If a problem arises, you're there to help solve that problem with your resources, with your time, with your energy? If you knew that the people around you are your family, wouldn't you be quicker to respond to their needs? Wouldn't you try to get to know them better? Now it's a matter of mindset, isn't it? If we see church as an event, we simply go. If we see church as a business or an organization of some sort, we, we simply participate as members. We take our part in it. But if we see church as family, it's not so simple. Then we become part of it. We form relationships. We live in community with others. That's very different. It's a very different approach to church. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. What he's saying is that if you just have a dream of community, but you're not actually willing to love people that you are with right here, you will kill community. Community won't happen if you just have this ideal, but you're not actually involved with people. But if you simply start loving people around you, community will happen. Now, we live in a generation that talks a lot about community. And obviously, since I'm not a part of any other generation, it's very hard for me to compare. But it seems like there's an inordinate amount of talk about community and authentic relationships and doing life together and all those phrases that we hear all the time. And yet, it seems like we also live in a generation that has very little commitment to loving others, to being with others. You can't just show up and expect community. But you can show up and love people and be loved by others and see community happen. But it happens because people love each other. And that requires commitment, that requires presence, that requires sacrifice. It doesn't happen just because we have an ideal of community. Just because we all get together and we say, let's all be a community. 
doesn't happen like that, does it? It happens on a Tuesday morning when somebody gives you a call and they need help. It happens every Sunday morning when you get to know people more and more with time. We have to be present, we have to be committed for community to actually happen. Now finally, my last point is how do we break through family dysfunction? We become part of the family through adoption in Christ. We behave towards one another as if we are related in, in a close family, parents, brothers and sisters, children. And yet we know that very often, more often than not, churches don't function as families, that there's a lot of dysfunction. There's dysfunction in our own church. How do you change that? How do you actually become a family in church? And not a dysfunctional family, but a healthy family. Now, I already mentioned that our relationships with one another are rooted in our relationship with God. So if our relationship with God is right, our community will function well, too. Now, to put it differently, the better we understand the gospel, the better we will function as a church family. Now, look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Very simple verse that gets at the heart of the motivation to treat others as family. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. My motivation to love others comes from the fact that he, God, loved me first in Jesus. The more I understand and experience God's love for me, the more I am able to extend that love to others the more I am excited to love others. But if I don't live in the reality of God's love for me through Christ, if that's something that I'm just reminded of on Sundays, but it's not my life, the less likely I am to love others. But if it's part of my life, if daily I dwell and abide in God's love for me in Christ, if that matters to me, if it's a real experience, if I understand what God did for me in Christ, then I will make every attempt to love others. Now, we often try to create community through programs and events, right? We say, let's do that to build community. That's fine. But please remember, community won't happen unless there's motivation to love each other. If I love somebody, I don't really need programs. I don't really need reminders. I will naturally do what's good for that person. But if I don't love them, no matter the program, no matter the culture, no matter the event, that's not going to make me love them. What will make me love them is my own experience of God's love through Christ for me in my own life. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus died for us. Is there a greater Sacrifice, is there a stronger case to be made that somebody loves you? Somebody gives their life for you? Is there anything else they can do to prove that they love you? I don't think there's anything bigger anybody could do. And here God says, I love you so much that my son will die for you to save you. That's how much God loves us. He proved it in Jesus. We can never question God's love for us. His own son died 
for us. To bring us to the Father, the Son had to die for our sins. We are redeemed by his blood, his blood that was literally spilled on the cross for our sins. And by the same blood, we are now all related to each other as family. We are blood relatives, not in the biological sense, but through the blood of Jesus. When you think about blood relations, and so often we would say, well, he's, he's my blood, what am I going to do? I have to stay loyal to them, I have to take him, I have to help them, he's my blood. That phrase sort of finishes any argument in the family often. What am I going to do? He's my blood, he's my, he's my brother, he's my, she's my sister, what can I do? It's like that in the church. We are each other's blood relatives, connected to one another through the blood of Christ, redeemed by the same blood which unites us now. How can we not help each other? How can we not love each other if we understand and experience the redemption through the blood of Jesus ourselves? I'll finish with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then we'll come to to the table. Bonhoeffer says, and by the way, his book, Life Together, is is an excellent book on community and and church. Uh, Bonhoeffer's Life Together, it's a short book. I encourage you to check it out. He says, Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and for all eternity. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede, the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for eternity. What unites us? Christ and his sacrifice. How can we be together as a family and behave like we're family members? Is if we remember and we dwell in and abide in the sacrifice of Christ for us. That's all we do at the table. We come to the table to remember what Jesus did for us, to experience it again, to receive grace from him that enables us to have faith in him and his sacrifice and his victory. That's why we come to the table. But we don't come alone, do we? We do it on a Sunday morning for a reason, because we're all here. We're coming together as a community, as a family comes to a dinner table. And so we come together. And if you are a believer, after I pray, I encourage you to come to this table. This is for you. You're part of the family. You're welcome at the table. If you're not a believer, if you're not part of God's family, you're not part of this family either. Now, I want you to become part of this family. And that happens if you respond to Christ in faith and you're adopted into God's family first. So let's pray, and then we'll take communion together.